Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 23, The Good Parts Version, where we will be looking at chapters 44 through 46 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of narrative discipline. For those who are familiar, skip ahead. For those that are not, each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdoms from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Fifteen seconds. Okay. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we're open to changing that. Second, we assume that you've read all the books in the Kingkiller Chronicle. Spoilers ahead. A word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Now that I've already gotten the fast-talking bug in my brain, that sounds disgusting, especially after we've just recently watched The Book of Boba Fett. Episode two, no spoilers, but uh. I mean, it's no worse than the regular bloodworms from Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. Yeah, that creeped me the ever-loving fork out when I was a kid. Also, the little worm bug thing, scorpion, whatever the heck, metal thing that went into Neo's navel in the Matrix. Blah. Anyway, so now that you're ready to talk like the guy from the Micro Machines commercials... Let's go ahead and give you 45 seconds on the clock here for your recap. You ready? You got 45 seconds. Otherwise, it's raspberries for you in three, two, one, go. This is one of my favorite Kilvin sections. We finally get to see what Quoth has been making in the fishery. It's a device he calls an arrow catch, which, I mean, he's really got to workshop that name, but eh, what can you do? Kilvin is pleased, but doesn't let that stop him from holding Quoth accountable for his bad actions taken to make a good thing. Later, we see Quoth being arrested at Anchors and are given a 45-second recap of his trial for calling the wind in Imre. Chronicler becomes annoyed when Quoth calls a break for lunch without fleshing out that story, and Bast and Quoth play host to the lunch crowd. All right, 31.87 seconds. So, uh, yeah, no raspberries for you this time. Woohoo! But not never. Never, never. There will be raspberries in your future. I know it. Maybe. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive in. I think this is a lot of fun here. We finally get to have the grand reveal of Quoth's other project that he's been obliquely referencing periodically between procuring a crossbow and all sorts of other weird things. Oh, yes, I need a bear trap, right? <laughs> Here's where we get our grand reveal. And this kind of has the feeling of every great science fair project where you've made it work at home, you've set it up, you've demonstrated it to yourself and to your friends, but you haven't actually demonstrated it to the teacher just yet because that's the one that actually counts. And of course, Quoth, with his flair for the dramatic, can't resist making sure that there are some little touches that maybe don't affect his grade, but they're points of professional pride, I think. So when he takes Kilvin back to his workroom, Kilvin notes the setup and is also at first a little leery that Quoth has just decided to make a better crossbow. So I want to say this, though. 
you're missing the very beginning of the section, and I think it's actually kind of important. Okay. First, Kvothe makes it very obvious that he is hunting for Denna, and that feels ooky. There's references to his troubles with Ambrose, and that he has an obsession with the archives. And just because he's been kicked out doesn't necessarily mean he's not going. I mean, he has a different route in. But he talks about how he managed to finish his fishery project, but he'd like to have had more time. I think that this is so common amongst people who make things. Oh, absolutely. I remember one of my project managers back in the day, every time one of the engineers would gripe about the brevity of our sprint cycles, I remember him saying, guys, no matter how big I make that time box, you'll always feel like you didn't get anything finished or everything finished that you wanted to. You'd fill whatever time box I give you and still have a lot of stuff you wanted to finish up. This way we can actually deliver something. I do think that that's an important thing to talk about. Like, I'm a creative person, generally speaking. I like to draw. I like to make things. I've worked in creative fields. I almost always feel like I could tinker with something forever. I could always redraw that line. I could always make something look just a little more perfect. I could always take a little more time to just work on that last 10%, which is the final finishing project. Same thing if I want to make food I've cooked look good or any given number of things. But the great thing about this podcast, I have set myself up with a deadline. Now, granted, when we first started, I set myself up with a rather unattainable or rather unsustainable deadline of once every week. Turns out this past year, once every two weeks has been kind of where we've lived and I no longer have a buffer and it makes me kind of crazy, but I haven't been late in the two years we've been doing this. Not once have I missed getting the project done each whatever cycle, one week or two weeks. I think part of it is setting yourself up with good expectation management and knowing that when it's done, it's done. So if I've left an um or a weird space or if I've cut together things too close, I'm not going to go back and noodle on that. I get done with it, I get done with it. And then it goes out and I kind of memory hole <laughs> what we said. Oh, absolutely. I memory hole everything we say the moment I'm done saying it. So we've had instances of people reminding us of something we said like six months ago. I can't remember what happened in episode 12. I can't remember what happened in episode 22. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I can either. I mean, I also, cards on the table, don't like listening to myself talk, so I don't go back and listen to the podcast just because, ah. I listened to it twice and still can't. <laughs> okay, to get back to the story, because you were making a good point. So... Kilvin is initially leery when he sees that crossbow because he's worried that Kvothe has just decided to become an arms maker, someone who's just trying to build a better crossbow, something that isn't going to markedly improve the world or how people view artificers and arcanists in general. It's sort of that idea of the amoral engineer whose responsibility for their creation ends the moment they put down their tools. 
And that's not how Kilvin views things. Kilvin is very much about taking responsibility for your creations. And I think here is where we see Quoth picking up some of that in some very positive ways. But we can understand the leeriness. Crossbows are illegal weapons in Imre, and so the only way to get one would be to do something unsavory. I find it funny that on one hand, Quoth has great respect for Kilvin, and on the other hand, he thinks Kilvin is too dumb or foreign or something else that leaves a bad taste in my mouth to know what the laws are nearby. Yeah, you kind of figure that he would have known he'd have to do some explaining on this one. And he very much follows the thought process of it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Yeah, I mean, Kilvin does give him the once over on this, as we'll see later on. But first, we have to get to the demonstration at hand. Quoth is approaching all of this with sort of the Silicon Valley presenter's showmanship he doesn't want to tell Kilvin what this is going to do or what the whole purpose of all of this is. He wants to show. And so he says, here, shoot at the dummy. This dummy, might we add, is also wearing the last remnants of Quoth's burned out and soiled set of clothing, which he's hand-stitched back together to dress it up. A needless touch, but again, it's that showman's pride. Anyway, so Kilvin is initially thinking this is something to do with the crossbow itself. And he's inspecting it for every little possible alteration that could have been made to it. And isn't able to find anything, so he takes aim and lets an arrow fly. And 20 feet from the target, clang! It drops out of the sky. Now this is obviously something very ingenious here. And so Kilvin tries again. And this is also where we get a sense that Kilvin, in addition to being very intelligent, is also incredibly strong because he's able to just load the crossbow without too much effort when Quoth is like, this is driving me crazy. My arms were popping out of their sockets trying to do this. Also, though, Kilvin is very curious and does it again. And the same thing happens. And then he notices the source of that clang which is a small octagonal lantern shape hanging in one of the corners of the room. Kilvin spots the device in the corner, rocking gently as if it has been hit by an arrow. It's an iron lantern-shaped thing that Quoth goes and retrieves to show Kilvin, while also showing him the schema for his creation. Essentially, it stops arrows. There is a long and drawn-out explanation of the signaldry required to stop the arrows and all of the subsequent, well, what if it's not made out of iron? What if it's not made out of this? What if it's not made out of that? Have you thought of contingencies? Blah, 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 blah. That's what this whole chapter is pretty much just like, so have you thought of this? Of course I have, except, well, I did that, da, 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 da. <laughs> and... This is also the sort of thing that Kilvin needs to ask. These are due diligence, because if this is something that Kilvin is going to sell, he needs to know exactly what the device's limitations are, what it can do, what it can't do, and what precautions any customers would need to take. On top of that, though, I do like that Quoth is still being a showman, because he's like, funny you ask. But wait, there's more. <laughs> this is an infomercial. And... To be fair, this is part of just giving an effective presentation. 
there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of showmanship, especially for something like this. He wants to be able to effectively show its value. It's at this point that Quoth shows his work. He's using the spring steel from the bear traps to essentially create an opposing force when an arrow enters range of the device. So he's got eight of these springs in a circle, which should provide stoppage for eight attacks in any direction. And because it's also hanging from a swivel, the springing force should also work to bring a fresh spring to bear should he have to fend off successive attacks from the same direction. There's nothing really to see when you look at it, except for featureless plates of dark iron. And that kind of made me think of the Skrail. A little bit. I don't think that the Skrail are living creatures. I think that they're constructs. I think that they're golems of some sort. Who would have made them, do you think? Somebody from the university that knows how to do artificing. Now, who made them versus who paid for them to be made might be different. Tis true. Anyway, just putting a pin in that one. So Kilvin, doing his due diligence here, asks about alternate arrowhead materials, because some people may be using arrowheads made from flint or obsidian. And Quoth reveals that he's also set a secondary set of bindings that will trigger for anything made out of stone or glass. He's also thought of bone arrowheads, but in a way that is not just the signs for bone because, A, that is not available to a Rilar, even though he can definitely find it. Like, he's basically taking a 10 or a 20 from D&D terms to just sit there and find it in the archives. Like, he would definitely have the tenacity to do this. But he has enough wisdom or intelligence, whichever one... I'd say wisdom. Gotcha. Where he won't do a sigildry to counteract a quickly moving bone object because of living beings that contain bones. And instead, he focuses on the shaft of the arrow. Yeah, that cylindrical piece of wood traveling at a certain speed will automatically trigger at 10 feet. So he's got multiple ways of catching different types of arrows. And one would think that he could have just done the cylindrical piece of wood thing. But, I mean, when you're trying to save your own life or the life of somebody else, you probably want backups. Having multiple contingencies in place is very useful. And Quoth is also, I think, thinking here in some very interesting ways. So I note that his concern is for a child cartwheeling, which I think speaks to his growing up. He remembers when he was a kid. His concept of a caravan is not strictly just a merchant traveling from point A to point B with just goods and services. He's thinking of a family of troopers. He's thinking of people like his family and what this would have meant for them if they didn't have to worry about bandits. You know, if bandits weren't able to just shoot them full of arrows, you know, that would give them a fighting chance. It's very interesting how he thinks about this here. And I think this revealed something about Quoth. Kilvin also says, also horses. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Living beings of any sort. Yep. So we also find out that Quoth is having trouble naming the thing. He's calling it an arrow catch, which is incorrect. Yeah, it's not strictly accurate because it doesn't catch the arrows. It just stops them. And he even mentions that any name that he tried to come up with was just terrible. Arrow trap was pedestrian. The Traveler's Friend was prosaic. 
Bandit Bane was ridiculously melodramatic. I could never have looked Kilvin in the eye again if I tried to call it that. And I love how Kilvin takes the piss out of him here a little bit as well, saying, you know, I think that one of Master Elodin's students would be better at naming this thing. <laughs> right, which actually comes back to, I think that this is very clearly telegraphing that his time at the university is coming to an end of its usefulness. Yeah, I think he's hit a wall. And this sort of represents a turning point for him. Like even in the fishery, he's not really got much left that he can do, that he can learn there that he hasn't already learned. Though Quoth and his general attitude towards things is, okay, I've learned it, next thing, instead of, okay, I've mastered it. Well, and that's just it. It's not that there isn't more stuff that he could learn or that someone could learn. It's just there isn't more stuff that Kvothe, with his unique psychology, could learn in that setting. I'll go with that. Obviously, he could master things. Obviously, he could take the time to really polish his abilities. But that's not something that he has the appetite for. Ew. And it's not something that the university can instill in him. It's not something that formal education in general can really instill in him. He needs to go out and have experiences, and he needs to get out of his own set routines to actually go have himself an adventure to really grow beyond the boundaries of the university. Now, to finish up, talk about the arrow catch, which is both fascinating and a little bit tedious because of the way that he just has to keep talking about how he thought about this thing, and he thought about that thing, and he thought about this other thing. There's little red dots that are visible on the faces of the arrow catch that tell the user if the spring has been sprung. I love the fact that he's actually thinking of UI and UX. Absolutely. So then Kilvin gives him his four questions, which are, why did he make this thing? Of all the things he could make, why did he choose this one? And Quoth says, no one should die from ambush on the road. Then we go into the, where did Quoth get the crossbow? And of course, Quoth can only just say, I procured it. And then why not a simple hunter's bow, avoiding the need for illegal procurement? And Quoth answers a pretty reasonable one, which is he needed to make sure it would be something that would stand up to reasonable use. He wanted to make sure that he was testing his device against an actual use case, since a hunter's bow is going to be a lot lighter and not generate the same level of force. And a Modegan bow would be really hard on Quoth to test at a consistency of, like, how far can he draw it? And, not for nothing, the Modegan bow would have been way too expensive. Then we go, why did Quoth procure gold wire and silver when there is none in the schema? There's a couple answers for this that Quoth doesn't say, such as he needed some for his gram. And then there's also the partial truth that he needed to use some of that to procure the other supplies that weren't available in the stocks, which is a little bit unethical. A little bit? Very much. I do adore the fact that Kilvin is internally consistent. He says, wrong follows wrong. He says, when you made your thieves lamp, you made a wrong thing in a very good way. Now you are making a very good thing in a very wrong way. I would like it if you made a good thing in a right way. This is better, but it's still not perfect. And I'm still not happy. And at the same time, 
he's still happy. Like he allows the fact that Kvothe's means of procurement were a bit underhanded and that it ended up him essentially using the stocks for things they weren't intended for. And he's able to say, okay, you know, we're going to have you work in the stocks for a little bit. If anybody asks why you're doing it, you got to tell them and we'll make you pay it back plus 20% because you treated it like a money lender. So we're going to charge money lenders rates. At the same time, he says, this is a fine piece of artificing that is going to make a major difference for a lot of people. And it's going to do a lot for the craft. You're pushing the art forward. I am proud of the work that you did. All of these things are true. So then he asked Kvothe to set the price. And I think here is where we get to see Kvothe showing a little bit of hard-won wisdom. So as someone who makes things and has no idea how to price them, I get it. It's very difficult. Sometimes you price yourself in a way that, let's say, for instance, on the Patreon, I had a thing that I, in theory, wanted to do, but in practice would be a right pain in the butt to do. I do have one of those, kind of. It's sending art that I've made to people who pay me for the pleasure of listening to the podcast. I would like them to have the means to do it, but it's also kind of a pain in the butt to send stuff out. And I would probably, especially with the postage rates the way that they are, be spending the amount that I get on sending the item itself. It's not that it's not worth it at a certain break point, but I have to set that high enough to cover the cost, but also possibly high enough to deter people <laughs> from doing it unless they really want the things. If you really want the things, I'm more than happy to get this working so that I can send you stuff out. But behind the scenes, I wanted to have that tier for people who wanted to spend a lot on the podcast and give them a reward for it. But it's not like, oh yeah, give me $2 a month and I'll give you something that costs me like 60 bucks to ship. Yeah, shipping rates have gotten crazy. Absolutely. Because some of my artwork that I would be wanting to give y'all is like canvases. Stuff that doesn't just fit in an easy flat rate box. Right. Yeah, so Kilvin then decides to say, okay, if you don't know, let's start with materials. And Kilvin knows exactly how much all the materials cost because he's got an internal ledger to rival Kvothe's own. And then he says, okay, how much time do you spend on it? Because that's important. All of us artists that undervalue our time, <sighs> I'm guilty of this. Every artist that I've ever met is guilty of this. You make things because you enjoy them and you want to give other people the pleasure of the item. Also, sometimes you want it out of your house. Undervaluing yourself is a real big issue sometimes. I think it's always really easy to start just thinking of the cost of things just in terms of the raw material cost without thinking about, okay, how much is my hourly rate? And how much time did I spend on this? Now, even if you say, okay, I'm going to say a $15 an hour minimum rate, which is a barely living wage, you know, and you, you start adding in the amount of time that you spend on it, it adds up real quick. So even something simple, it may take you 40 hours of work to do. In this case, Quoth has spent over 100 in terms of everything from procurement to research and development and design and you know, redos, things like that. And he says that if he were to remake it, 
you could probably do it in like 50 to 60 hours, which is still a lot of time. Right. That's a non-trivial amount of work there. And so Kelvin says, okay, based on that, I'd say this is worth 25 talents. And Kvothe is surprised. This is more than he had hoped for. He really likes the idea until he thinks about it a little bit because he would rather this item be used by as many people as possible than only be available to people with enough gold in their pocket to even hire bodyguards. This should be something that's available to everyone from the wealthiest merchant to the most modest traveling group of troopers. All of these are people who would benefit from this invention and they all deserve it because this is not about making money. This is about making something that provides value to everyone. And I think Kilvin respects that. He says, okay, well, I still think it's worth 25. I would like to buy this first one at that rate to add to my personal collection because this is sort of like the signed first edition. And Kilvin also takes a look at the schema so that he can replicate it because he knows that this is something that he can set his students to making. And Quoth says, for 25 talents, you can have the original schema. Quoth is, I think, not necessarily thinking about what's the production line on this look like. This is also where Kilvin starts to gain an appreciation for some of Quoth's growth. I can't say that five times fast. Well, lucky for you, you said it one time and you're fine. Excellent. So, I mean, Quoth ends up coming out pretty all right here, and he's learned some valuable lessons, and he's shown some real wisdom, I think. So I think we can give him an attaboy on that. But he's still not your Fernemos, right? Of course not. He's still got a ways to go. So after he settles his debts for the materials, the workshop commission, and all the other miscellaneous costs, even with the extra 20% that he owed for the materials that he essentially pilfered, he ends up still with 11 talents, which is way more than he expected. And that has him sitting pretty good and feeling pretty happy. I gotta say, I love this kind of mental image that Pat leaves us with. Kilvin wrote me a receipt and left, clutching the arrow catch like a child with a new favorite toy. Kilvin is definitely the weird dad who likes all of his weird gadgets. Like, it's a passion for him. He's the sharper image dad. The hammocker slimmer dad. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so cards on the table here. My own dad is one such dad. Every Christmas, the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog was one of my dad's favorite things to get just because, you know, it was loaded down with all sorts of over-engineered goodies that were absolutely ridiculous. You know, maybe one in a hundred of these would be things that dad would actually want. Usually they were weather stations. Like he got a new weather station every year, it felt like. And he recently got a new weather station. He just really likes them. He really does. It's a fascination for dad. But I get the sense that that's also Kilvin a little bit. And so every time I see that side of Kilvin, it reminds me a little bit of my own dad. And <laughs> maybe that's part of my affection for the character. So moving on, let's go to chapter 45, Consortation. Starts off, Quilt's having a good felling night at Anchor's. He's playing his songs. He's made Sim cry a couple times. You know, the usual. In a happy way or a melancholy way. Not in a mean way. But mostly he's just made Sim cry at his music. Because of the beauty of it all. 
I think there's a part of Kvothe that really appreciates having an audience member who really understands the emotional gravity of all of this. Even as you can tell that he's sometimes gently making fun of Sim, I think there's a part of him that really loves having someone who is that affected by the work he does. And so he thinks that the silence that greets him in the inn is appreciation for his music until he looks up. Oops. It's the constables and an inquisitor and all this official stuff that is like, what, what, what? Oh, wait, there's consequences for my actions? I mean, to be fair, he thought he'd already had the consequences. True. He was whipped. Yeah, and put on trial and everything. The university really didn't put him on trial. They put him on the horns. And I can see how he thought hey, I'm a wizard. The wizards are going to be the ones that punish me, sort of. But we also get this bit where we get a good bit of Simon character here. Simon, for once, suddenly speaks up. Like a duke's son. And it's not in an attempt to make Kvothe feel bad. Instead, it's in Kvothe's defense. What is the meaning of this? How dare you? And, of course, the summoner who is charged with all of this, has the authority to basically take anybody to court. Up through, what was it, a baron? Yes. Members of the church, government officials, you name it. This guy is authorized to hold anybody accountable. We find out that Quoth here is being charged with consortation with demonic powers, malicious use of unnatural arts, unprovoked assault, and malfeasance. And all Quoth can think to say on all this is, What? Pretty much. And then he's handcuffed and taken without even the option to grab a coat. It's pretty inhumane, honestly. Like, he's chained, he's feeling the manacles against his feet and his wrists, and it's freezing cold outside. Remember, this is the middle of winter, much like it is right now as we record this. It means it's frigid temperatures, it's wet. It is not time to be out unprotected in the elements. And especially not while you're chained up like this. It basically frog march him. It's pretty terrible. The next day, Simon and Elksadal show up to help him sort of sort things out and figure out what's going on. And we find out that this is essentially payback for the time that Kvothe called down the wind and broke Ambrose's arm after Ambrose broke the loot. And then we get less than a page worth of explanation for one of the stories that Chronicler was excited to hear about. Like, it's in that rundown in the very beginning of The Name of the Wind. And I think what follows is kind of both Pat self-editing and going, okay, well, that no longer interests me, so I'm not going to write in detail about this thing. It's no longer relevant. I know I said something about it at the very beginning of the entire series. It just doesn't fit anymore. I spent too much time at the university anyway. Why would I continue writing about this? This isn't interesting. No one wants this. Like, so that might be a conversation that he had with his editors or his editors had with him. So one or the other. And I think it's funny to be able to read what is written here and kind of assume what happened outside of the book. It is a little bit meta and it's a lot of fun here. Yeah, essentially, Quoth just says, look, this is boring stuff. You really don't need this to understand the story. 
Here's the important parts. It squashed my hopes of getting a local patron and plays a large role in me leaving the university for a spell. So then we go to chapter 46 for the aforementioned meta editor conversation where he basically says, look, it's long, it's boring. Pretty much it's just a whole bunch of people reading speeches and letters that they wrote. There's a public record of it if you want to read it. Go for it. Knock yourself out. It's really not interesting. It's not germane to the actual story of who I am. Chronicler is like, but you learned Tema in a day and you did all this other stuff. I just want to know. He's like, yeah, I mean, so I use Duolingo, whatever. You know, that's not really a great storytelling beat right there. That's a training montage. <laughs> oh, I love how you describe that. That's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and like I say, it's not really the most important part of the story. I love the bit where he says, besides, I think I may have spent too much time at the university anyway for this story. There's a lot of other stuff I got to talk about. Right. Like we're almost 400 pages into all of this. And I mean, he's got other bits that he's got to talk about. He's got the Florian bit. He's got the parts in Ventus. He's got the parts in Adam. And he's got all of he's just like so many more interesting things. And I think that maybe Pat had a hard time with just figuring out where to stop talking about the university. Yeah, because the university sections tend to fall into a bit of a rut. They're sort of Kvothe goes to class, Kvothe learns a thing, Kvothe doesn't learn a thing, Kvothe pisses off somebody at the university, either Ambrose or a teacher or both, Kvothe goes on the horns, rinse, repeat. It's cyclical. And I think this is both Pat and Kvothe realizing that for this story to move forward, they need to do more. Absolutely agree with that. Now, some of the bits in the future are a little bit, but at least it's different. It's moving outside of that cycle of this is just a comfortable story about some kid at wizard school. And to be fair, like when you're stuck at school, you're really isolated from everything outside of school. I mean, yes, Kvothe has his performing so that he's not just a one note student, but there's only so much of go to school, perform at anchors, go to school, perform at anchors that you can deal with. Go to school, perform at the Aeolian, go to school. Yeah, it's not always the most useful in terms of progressing the story. And so, yeah, here is where I think we get some of the narrative discipline that the story has needed. And I say this lovingly as someone who does genuinely love these books. There are some repetitive beats that I think it takes some discipline to break out of. And it's something that I think both both the character and I think Patrick Rothfuss, the writer, needed. As we go forward in this little section, there's some gentle ribbing of Chronicler, where Chronicler is like, wait, you wrote it down already? In that kind of fake, but not really fake indignation thing? Because he knows from Bast that Quoth already started writing it and just crumpled it up and left it on his desk. So he's doing that, wait, are you telling me that blah, 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 blah. And trying to pass it off as though that emotion was genuine. Well, and there's also, you mean I was busting my ass trying to write down everything when you'd already done the hard work? That's also a little bit. And Quoth coming back like, wait, you're acting like a wounded lover. Easy. I only wrote a few pages. 
None of it good. I think this also speaks to the difference between coming up with a story and writing it down. A lot of people are really good at coming up with stories and telling stories off the cuff. When it comes to the business of actually writing, that's a whole other ballgame. And it's difficult. And I think it kind of speaks to Pat here a little bit. We know that Pat has been working for a long time on this next book. And I don't know how many false starts he's had, how many times he's had to scrap the whole thing and start over, how many times he's had to do some major overhauling to make things work the way he wants them to be. And it's really difficult. You have an idea for a story, but until you actually start the business of writing it, it seems really easy. And that actual writing it down is really tough. And not only that, he's had a lot of life happen to him in these last 10 years. And he's also a perfectionist. And I think part of it is he wants to make sure that he's telling a story that does justice to all of the work that's come before and all of the things that have changed him in the intervening years. I think it's really easy sometimes to think of writers as these monolithic people who are the same throughout their entire writing career and their entire lives. But I mean, you know, there's the old Heraclitus adage that you can never cross the same river twice. We are all that river. We change constantly. We are constantly in a state of flux. And that is the only constant in life. We grow, we evolve. And I don't think that the pat of 10 years ago is the same as the pat of today. And I don't think that the work that Pat of today would write and be happy with is the same one that 10 years ago Pat would want. On top of that, he knows how many people love his books and love his writing. There's a lot of pressure. All I can say is I want the best for him. And if that means that I get a new book from the Kingkiller Chronicle here in the next 20 years, I'll consider myself fortunate. So long as Pat is a happy person... That's really what matters. But ultimately, they're just books. They're just books. They're not as important as his well-being. No. And while, yeah, it'd be great for my podcast if there was one that came out here within the next couple years or so. I mean, based on how much we've read, which is about a third of the story, we could probably make another two years out of the rest of the wise man's fear. But like I say, <laughs> while it would be great, it would be great to get one here soon. I also know not at the expense of another human being, not at the expense of Patrick Rothfuss doing those things that help him to be the writer that people admire. So I can respect that. Meanwhile, we do get a little bit of fun trickery here as well. We get the sense that Quoth actually wants Bast to make the soup, but Bast is kind of shirking on that. And so Quoth makes like he's going to put some beets in it and then plays off of Bast's aversion to beats to get Bast to do it. I also wonder if there's a little bit of onomatopoeia happening because story beats and beats. That could be. I also think because beats have high iron content. That's true. That that could also be why Bast has that aversion. I also, though, really like how it's brought in Reshi, no! Because at this point, he's just said... I'm going to leave the university alone and go to other things that haven't been told before. And I got to tell you on the audiobook, it plays perfectly because it's like, I'm going to talk about things that might make me upset. And Bass is like, no, oh, no beats. 
Right. No beats. Right. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> so then we've got the lunch crowd shows up and it's a bigger one than usual because the funeral has just happened for Carter. And, you know, that gets people out and about. People don't necessarily want to cook, so they're more likely to go out for their lunch. Plus, you've got people who've been working the fields all day. So it's a bit of a crowd today. One of the things that we notice here is there's sort of a negative space, a silence around certain things. So war, succession, kings, the scrail and the skin dancer, and then most importantly, the death of Carter. And no one eyed the stretch of well-scrubbed wooden floor that didn't show a trace of blood. Right. No one is looking at that. And you get the sense that they're making an effort not to look at it. Also, it goes back to saying, Bast and the man who called himself Coat work together as a comfortable team. You could also read that as Bast and the man that called himself Disaster. Yeah, I think this is also where we see the mask of Coat slide back into place. As soon as people show up, Coat takes over and we see the innkeeper slide into essentially just task mode. He's just doing the things that need to be done. But we also note that he's kind of on autopilot here and he's not really taking initiative on a lot of things. Bast is the one who's setting the tempo, setting the tasks, and Coates just kind of taking up the beat and following along. After the majority of the town has come in and gone, the door bangs open, Old Cobb, Graham, and Jake trudged out of the brilliant midday sunlight and call hello, spread out, take up space, and ask for food. And then we get this charming little discussion of how good Quoth's cooking is, making apple pie, and the gentle ribbing between a man and his wife, where the wife is like, don't swear. <laughs> the man makes up this kind of elaborate pun, almost. It's the sort of thing that a dad might say just to try and get out of trouble for swearing in front of the kids. Oh, damn finds a region in Ator famous for their apples. You know, everybody knows this, right? Yes. Right, guys? <laughs> I think it's charming and cute and sweet. I think that it's very possible that the poor long-suffering wife here is <laughs> an order muppet and that... <laughs> Her husband is what I affectionately call a chaos Muppet, which is to say you. As a chaos Muppet married to an order Muppet, I felt this a little bit. And <laughs> you get the sense that if you don't know these people, they might not always look happy immediately from the outside. But you can tell he's having a little bit of fun here. Like He liked having the excuse to come up with this elaborate story. And the saddest part about this really is Coates' answer to this Oh, they came from the Bentons. Just sort of that meek answer. Like, if he were in Quoth mode, I could see him running with that. Being a showman and taking up his trooper mentality. And having fun with the joke and, you know, having a sense of playfulness about it. But here we can see that Coat is dead inside. Coat is a prison and does not allow for him to express any of that joy. And so it kind of puts a bit of a damper on things. And that's really, I think, where the true tragedy of that whole little interlude is. Because Quoth, the person that has been telling us this story, would not have responded that way. But Coat is just, oh, actually, they're from the Bentons. And he doesn't even really accept the compliment to his cooking. Which, let's be real, Quoth, 
as someone who has made a point of understanding chemistry and all of these points of physics and everything, it's natural that he would be good at cooking because that's really understanding reactions and things like that. And it's also an act of love. And so when someone compliments you on your cooking, that is a way to say, hey, that thing that you did to show me love, I received it in kind. And Kvothe can't even do that. Coat won't let him. I think it's a real tragic bit there. We go along. Old Cobb mentions that he thinks that this place could be a gathering place of merriment and joy and that it would do the people good to have someone here who could perform music. But of course, that's never going to happen here. Coat won't let it happen. All he can say is, I expect you're right. And it's that sort of non-answer. And I love how it describes it here. His voice was perfectly calm. It was a perfectly normal voice. It was colorless and clear as window glass. And you can feel that kind of time dilation in this section. You go from something that's this lively conversation with the gentleman that was trying to get out of trouble with his wife and these friendly suggestions of, you should have music, you should make this place more welcoming, and we would all really appreciate the levity. We would love this place even more. They already love it. That's the thing. This would make it even better. I want to have this kind of crowd more often. People would love to have an opportunity to have music here. And all Coat can say is, I expect you're right. He doesn't say, you're right. He doesn't say that's a good idea. He doesn't say, yes, let's do it. He says, I expect you're right. And that's just sort of this non-committal, non-answer that is meant to basically just close the conversation off because it's too painful for him. And then we pick back up. And after a slow moment, the innkeeper swung silently back into motion along with his assistant, heading into the kitchen to fetch soup and bread with butter and cheese and apples. All that's left to him is the routine. And here, I think, is something that's really important. Just as Kvothe needed to get out of the rut of the university, Coat needs to get out of the rut of being just the innkeeper, of going about the day-to-day. And I think it's also a reminder to us as readers that our story is more than just our day-to-day routines. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge those things that make our stories worth telling, make our stories vibrant, and make our lives meaningful, and to find what those things are. We will all come to a point in our lives where we are living a rut. We're living through just a routine. And I know over the past two years in the pandemic where we've all been locked down, it's been really easy to fall into that rut. I totally get it. And it's really easy to just look at the same four walls every day and forget about those things that bring joy and value. And I think sometimes you need to look at what in your routine is actually providing that value and why you actually do that. And then what are those things that you're doing just because of habit? And then really think seriously about it. I think there's some real tragedy in this. And I think there's some things that we can all learn from it. So with that out of the way, speaking of things that we can learn from, let's talk about our Phrenemos of the week. To start us off here, my Phrenemos of the week, our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom. Today, it's Kilvin. This is not a surprise. 
Like I've said, I see a lot of my dad in Master Kelvin, so I can't help but feel a little bit of affection for him. There's a couple things. First of all, Kilvin recognizes Quoth's concern with unintended consequences in the arrow catch that might occur if he used the rune for bone, regardless of whether he knew it or not. Because Quoth was thinking about what are the things that would make this more unsafe. His goal here is to create something that is a safety device, and if it makes things more unsafe, that defeats the purpose. And so he's been thinking very seriously about it, and so when he displays that concern, I think that means a lot to Kilvin. Again, Quoth is thinking of it in terms of children because he grew up in a caravan. He knew what sorts of things that caravan life might entail for a kid. The last thing you would want is something designed to protect your family, but unintentionally decapitates a child. Second, Kilvin understands the value of Quoth's work and his time. Beyond just the materials, he recognizes that there is value in Quoth's time, and then also value in the lives that it would save. And he also recognizes the virtue in Quoth wanting to make it affordable. So here's a situation where Kilvin isn't going to force Quoth to set it at an affordable price. Because if he forced that, Quoth wouldn't have learned a lesson there. But he's also not going to force Quoth to set it at a price that is so high that he's uncomfortable with it. Exactly. What he's doing here is he's recognizing that there is true value in this, and also that its value is going to be greater if it's cheaper. And also preserving Quoth's agency in the choice of how to price his own creation. Exactly. He wants to see what Quoth's values actually are. And one of the things that I've noticed is Kilvin sees something in Quoth that Quoth doesn't always see in himself. He sees a potential in Quoth to think about more than just money. One of the things that Kilvin has been trying to teach Quoth is that if you act in a way that's consistent with your principles and you do good work, the money will take care of itself. So you don't need to do things just for money. If you're doing things for the right reasons and you do them well, the right people will pay for them and you will be much better off than if you were just doing money grubbing work, right? Deck lamp work. Here he is seeing Quoth allow his principles to do the guiding. And this is where he really appreciates it. And he also recognizes that Quoth is someone who could probably use some extra cash. He knows that there's a lot of stuff that Quoth has to pay back. So I think that's also part of why he chooses to pay the 25 for the first edition. He knows that this is something special and that this is going to make a big difference in the lives of the people who use it. And it's also going to make a big difference in Quoth's life. 25 talents doesn't mean a whole lot to Kilvin, but it does mean a lot to Quoth. I'd also point out that if you contrast this with the end of the last section we talked about, where a person traveling around with this letter acting as mail service asks Quoth, would you have paid me more? And Quoth saying, yeah, I probably would have. It's an interesting way to look at Kilvin's reaction because instead of just saying, oh, so it's only priced at eight, I'll give you eight, says, I value this at 25, I'll give you 25. And also, will you let me pay 25 for this first edition and then we can sell a mass-produced version of this for eight? On top of that, it just shows that Kilvin isn't so worried about making a profit, even though, I mean, he will definitely make a profit if it's nine jots and you still get eight talents back. I don't know the exact 
conversion of this, but if you sell a lot of them, you'll still wind up with a lot of money. Exactly. You know, he's thinking very seriously about what this is worth, and he's thinking this will do good, and I will honor the principles of my student. I think that is really important. He's teaching Kvothe that even if those principles are not ones that are Kilvin's first instinct, he will still honor those. So I think that's really awesome there. I also think that he does something really cool here where he says, okay, the stuff that you did with all those extra supplies that you basically embezzled, not cool with that. I don't have to be cool with that to recognize the value of what you've made. Even as I am unhappy about that behavior, which we're going to take separately, we're not gonna hold it against your creation here. This is a separate action. You're gonna work some time in the stocks, gonna have to eat your crow, you're gonna have to pay back what you took, plus interest since you used it like a money lender. Which is perfectly fair. It's 100% fair, it's more than fair. It is a small price to pay. And he also kind of makes it clear that while he's disappointed, he is far more pleased at the growth that Kvothe has actually shown here. Kvothe has actually pushed himself on this project in a way that he really hasn't almost anything else in the fishery. This is an example of Kvothe really applying his ingenuity and his cleverness in ways that will make life better for a lot of people. Then he also manages to find a graceful solution for the problem of the crossbow. He's like, okay, look, tell you what, how about we just say it's mine? I can handle this in a way that you can't. I mean, Kilvin has the entire legitimacy of the university to back him up in ways that Kvothe really doesn't. Kvothe doesn't have Kilvin's time and title. And he basically says, okay, I'm going to take the hit on this one. I can afford to take it. And I know that you, a student, really cannot. On top of that, now it is equipment that everyone can use provided they check it out and they have permission to. But it's also a really good thing for testing future arrow catches. Exactly. Because if Kilvin wants to set up a shop that's making multiple arrow catches, he's going to need multiple people working on it. He's going to need to have a QA department that is able to make sure that these are worthy to sell. So that means he's got to be able to test these repeatedly. And Quoth is right. The crossbow is the most effective way to repeatedly test it because it's not reliant on arm strength for each draw, so you're getting a consistent arrow velocity each time. It represents something that people would run into in the real world that a lot of bandits would probably use as well. It is something that does not require a whole lot of extra skill to use, so even a basic student can test it effectively without too much trouble. It's all about making this thing repeatable, and while Kilvin wishes it didn't require going through a black market fence to get it, he does recognize the value there and is willing to put his name on the line for it. So I think all of that shows a fair amount of courage and wisdom and kindness. There is justice, but there's also grace. I think that's something that Kvothe has been in need of because he's really just been on the receiving end of justice for a long time now without getting a whole lot of the grace. And so every bit where he gets that tempered is good. So that was my Frenemos. I like it. And I like the points that you made. Thank you. Speaking of the masters, it's time to talk about a lesson of Master Elidens, which is an interesting fact of the week. And I believe it's your turn. It is. Today, I'm pretty much just going to give you a list of interesting facts about something that is very intriguing to me and that is the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm. First off, 
In 2002, it was named for NASA's second administrator, James Webb, who held the office from 1961 through 1968, which meant that he oversaw the Apollo program. The choice to name it after Webb was controversial because he was a bureaucrat and not a scientist. Also, he was a massive homophobe. Not unusual for that time. And he did his best to push queer folk out of the government in an effort dubbed the Lavender Scare. Oof. Like, it was so bad that it has a name. Oh. It, yeah. So, from here on out, I will be referring to it the same way that the scientists working on it are referring to it, which is the JWST. Or J-Dub. They don't refer to it that way. They sometimes call it the web, but that's still too close to this person. So, from here on out... JWST. Okay. So while the project is headed by NASA, it is actually multinational with the European Space Agency acting as a key partner. It was built in Redondo Beach, California. It was conceived as a $1 billion observatory launching in 2007, but ultimately became a $10 billion project that launched on Christmas Eve 2021. To me, that was just a really awesome cosmic Christmas gift. I really love space and telescopes and learning. And I think there's so much to learn from projects like this. And it's also a bit of a nail biter, as we will see as I describe this thing. The telescope had to be shipped, as in by ship, from California to French Guiana, which is where it was going to be launched. And it had to go through the Panama Canal. So in our time of Everything takes 10 million days to ship from place to place on this planet. We shipped that telescope halfway around the world via ship. And luckily enough, it seems that there were no logistical issues getting it there. No extra complications. No stuck barges. Oh, yeah. It would have been bad. Because launches like this have a launch window. Delays of a day could be the difference between being able to launch on time and having to wait a year. Or more. Anyway, the JWST had to be launched into space instead of being located on Earth, because no matter how high of an elevation you place a telescope, the atmosphere will always interfere and limit its capabilities and blur the images. The telescope's mirror is 21.3 feet, which is 6.5 meters, across which is just under three times as big as the Hubble's mirror. The mirror is made from beryllium coated in gold and consists of 18 hexagonal sections. More than 100 motors control the mirrors in order to make subtle fine-tune adjustments. The JWST will observe mostly infrared and long red wavelengths, as opposed to Hubble, which observes in the visible light spectrum. To operate at peak efficiency, the JWST must be kept exceedingly cold and in complete darkness. To aid in this, its final orbit will keep it on the far side of the Earth from the Sun, and it is equipped with a sun shield, which consists of five tennis court-sized sheets of mylar that are each thinner than the width of a human hair. Yeah, I mean, these are basically the things that party balloons are made out of. And they're folded and had to be deployed by robots and not rip. And that has to assume that it made it through shipping 
and launch without breaking. Absolutely. This is a month-long nail-biter for all of the people in charge of this project. I know, and especially given little things like space dust, cosmic rays, which are microscopic, they can tear through that. Hopefully they just make holes and not rips. Yeah. As of January 8th, the Sunshield has successfully deployed. I think that that in itself is an amazing feat of engineering. So good for the scientists. As of the time of this recording, we're about halfway through all the nail-biting parts of deploying this telescope, with both the mirror adjustments and propulsion to its final orbiting place, which is dubbed L2, still to come. It will then take a further five months to get cold enough before it can be used properly. Yeah, just the fault tolerances of this thing are so razor thin, like most space projects, really. That is a really tiny margin for error, and everything has to go exactly right for any of this stuff to work, and it always just boggles my mind. Its final operating point is too far from the Earth to make any repairs or adjustments, so we just kind of have to wait and see if everything works, which, ah, uh, ah, uh, wow, right? Like, I mean, it's gone. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. The initial mission is set to last for 10 years because that is how long it's expected for its propellant to last. And it needs to make micro adjustments every year to stay where it's supposed to be. And that also is kind of like, well, we'll see. I am really excited for when we actually start getting images back from this. I know, me too. It's going to be so cool. Yeah. And so my final little fact is not really about this telescope, but rather NASA scientists are already planning a bigger telescope project that may allow us to find more Earth-like planets and possibly life in space. That's really cool. And it has a tortured acronym right now. I can't remember what it stands for, but I believe that it is named after the Louvre. Of course. Look, it wouldn't be a space project if there weren't a tortured acronym. They come up with the acronym first and then try and come up with what it means second. Yes. That's how all these work. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. You're welcome. I just found that thing to be so fascinating. And I think it will be very important as time goes on. Yeah. I mean, the Hubble Space Telescope has been essentially a fixture of space life since I was a kid. 30 years. Yeah. And... We're now at the point where it's end of life. And there was a big stretch there where people were like, oh, we're never going to get this working exactly right. And there were multiple missions sent up to repair it and everything. But now it's just something that we take for granted. And this is, for a new generation of space nerds, this is going to be their Hubble. This will be that fixture in their space life, so to speak. Also, this thing is pretty. It is pretty cool. It looks like a beehive. A little bit, yeah. It's of all the hexagons. Not the base! <laughs> anyway, also, just Star Trek nerd here, the whole Mylar Sheets thing and then the whole mirror made out of gold and all of that stuff kind of reminds me of an episode of DS9 where they went on a ship that was essentially a sailboat in space. Oh yeah, the solar sailor that Ben Sisko made based on plans from the ancient Bajorans and then took with Jake. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I love that episode. 
I do too. All right, so now we come to thing of the week and we continue to be on brand. First it was space, now it's cats. So <laughs> what is my recommendation? It's cats, just cats. The animals, not the atrocious musical. So a cat's love is capricious and unusual and there's no guaranteed formula for securing it. So when you experience that love, it feels truly special. And even though cat ownership can be a lot of work between scooping poop, cleaning up messes, coaxing the cat to actually, you know, eat their damn food, dealing with making sure that none of your stuff gets destroyed, all that stuff, the feeling of a cat snuggling up with you on a cold day is one of life's truest pleasures. And it's something that we experience more now as the weather has gotten true cold here, you know, living in the deep freeze. We are not living in the deep freeze. Oh, that's true. It's only like 30 something. I mean, we don't have it remotely nearly as bad as a lot of, no. But as we're here in the cold season, it's really nice to have a cat curled up at your feet, in your lap, in bed with you. There's something that just feels really wonderful about that. I do have to make the caveat of there are also cat videos for those of you who are allergic. Yes. Naturally, if you are allergic, we're not going to recommend you go get yourself a cat. But watch plenty of cat videos because they're wonderful. Another thing I love is that cats are either the smartest dumb animals or the dumbest smart animals. And sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference. Just watch them play with reckless abandon and you'll see what I mean. And this is true whether they are house cats or like lions. Or big cats. Yes. And of course, we've got two wonderful podcasts of our own, and we wouldn't have it any other way. You've no doubt seen pics of Leela and Sokka on our Twitter and Instagram, and you've also heard us talk about them often. Even when we find them exasperating, there's no two ways about it. We love these little furballs whom we've nicknamed Snuggle Muffin and Trouble Muffin. I'll let you, dear listeners, figure out which is which. And finally, I'm going to close this off here with a story of feline aggravation that, well, I'll explain. So Monday morning, I got up to do my usual morning chores and make breakfast, but unusually, Sokka didn't join me. Now, normally, when I go downstairs to start doing dishes or making breakfast or what have you, Sokka runs downstairs with me and then jumps up on top of the refrigerator and then meows at me until I pet his head and give him scratches. But he didn't do that that morning. You know, I was a little tired and groggy, so I didn't really notice it. It didn't really register with me. At one point, I heard a thud from upstairs, but I couldn't really find him. I figured he was probably under a bed somewhere. Like I say, I was a bit groggy. So when Phoenix woke up, we started to notice his absence more keenly as he wasn't responding to our calls the way he normally would. Or and the treats, the monkfish treats that Leela will climb me for, and he dearly loves. Yeah, he was not responding. Like, we didn't even hear a meow or anything like that. Just nothing. And that got us a little bit afraid. We started fearing for the worst. We were worried that he was hurt somewhere or worse. It was pretty scary. So we started looking for him frantically everywhere we could think of. We looked in my office, the garage, under the bed, under the couch. In the linen closet, in the laundry room. Behind all the appliances, behind the bed, in every cubby. Nothing. Finally, while I was going upstairs for another look, I noticed that the door to our music room, where we usually record, was slightly ajar. I opened it up and looked inside, and sure enough, there was our little troublemaker, just pleased as punch, meowing happily at me, as if nothing was wrong. That little butt. So we both heaved massive sighs of relief, and then proceeded to give him more hugs than he would have probably liked, but that's the price he pays for scaring us like that. Absolutely. Now... One thing to explain about our music room. 
This is the room with all of the Sokka contraband in it. This is the room where stuffies that he has decided to play with suddenly after a year of them being in his presence, and then he just won't leave them alone. This is where they go. This is where all of the musical equipment that we don't want him to chew on goes. This is where the really adorable felt Muppet head ornaments that Will's sister gave us for Christmas live. This is where there is an unsupervised bed and there are cords everywhere and the rig for recording things that we don't want him to chew apart this is where it all lives and we make sure to shut the door and he somehow got in anyway to be fair sometimes the door closes without properly latching and i suspect that's what happened in this case because he was able to push in and get it open but oh man he gave us such a scare and all of that to be said we still love the little guy, and we still love Leela, and we wouldn't have them any other way. They bring us so much joy in our lives, and so I would encourage you, if you are in a position where you can afford to, and it's safe for you to do so, so like if you live in a place where your landlord will let you have a cat, or you know if you have a place that is safe for a cat to live, I'd encourage you to look at your local pet rescue to see if there are any available for adoption. Or fostering. Or fostering. That's another great option if you aren't up for a long-term commitment. That might be a good option to sort of see if cat ownership is something that would really help you, that you could really realistically do. And it also gives you an opportunity to give a, a little kitty you know, a better life. So these are all things to consider. These are all things that are wonderful. I understand that not everybody is in a place where they can do so whether it's because of their financial circumstances or because of allergens or what have you, or your living situation. But if you have the ability, give it a thought. It can be really rewarding, and I know it means a lot to us. So that's my recommendation. And I'd say that if you're not a cat person and you're a dog person instead, look into adopting a little furry friend that suits you more. Rabbit people, ferret people, y'all are valid. Absolutely. There's something to be said for having a furry companion or, or scaly. Or I was about to say, or a scaly companion. Or a slimy companion, if it's a frog. Or a snail. All of these are valid. Having an animal companion can be really rewarding, and it lets you take care of another living creature, and it's beautiful. So with that, it's time for us to talk about our seven words. So I have seven words from the books, and I am spoiled for choice. I've got a bunch of these here. Now I've got to pick one. This is going to be the hardest part. I'll help. All right. So I've got first, tests were important. Tests were like rehearsal. Then I've got, this is a truth all troopers know. Then I'm having some trouble with the name. It does not catch the arrow precisely. I haven't been able to test that. First, of all things, why make this? I am rescinding your precious metals authorization. It is an improvement to the world. He was much too clever for that. You might want to do the same. That's it. Not much to it, really. There are already two full written accounts. You've already spoken to a historian about this. Never been brought to trial, have you? A lot of people like Beats Bast. And they're healthful. Good for the blood. We were downright frantic for a while. So, which of those do you think I should do? I also like... But you show your wisdom in this. 
Mm, yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. Let's use that one. Okay. I think that is an example of Kilvin recognizing Kvothe as someone who has displayed wisdom for once. And even as his concern is not precisely the one that Kilvin was thinking of, it is still just as valid and meaningful. So, you have seven words from life. What did you choose? So lately we have been watching a new to us, or mostly new to us, YouTube channel with a stage combatant named Jill Barrop, which I highly recommend you watch her breakdowns of movie fights because they are endlessly entertaining. She said on one of her videos, joy is a good and underrated thing. And I highly agree with this. It's so easy for us to focus on the negative things, to look at all the things that are going wrong, to look at all of the things that are making us upset or bringing us hardship or making us angry. Looking at the bits of a person that you love and only seeing the things that they do that aren't rosy and kind and loving. To look at a situation and focus only on the things you don't like. It's hard to make yourself see the good things, to see the joy, to see just how much those little touches can make you happy, or at the very least, content. And so I agree with this. Joy is a good and underrated thing. I'm also going to say this. No matter how highly you rate joy, experiencing it is absolutely amazing and wonderful and you realized even if you loved it before there was more to love there i can appreciate that on multiple levels thank you and with that i'd like to thank you for potting with me and thank you for potting with me and thanks for listening to tales from the waystone join us next time on tales from the waystone as we cover chapters 47 through 49 of the wise man's fear through the lens of breaking out of cycles we would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, early access to the pod, Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. First time I've had to make the song in 2022, Airplane. I mean, it's the first clear day of 2022. I haven't been able to have the flight school open. Thank the tiny gods.